Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Natalie, welcome to the War Room. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you are tied up in um, a very exciting space, you might say, a very fast-paced, moving, and controversial space. Of course, Bitcoin is what I'm talking about. So what got you interested in Bitcoin? Uh, It was a several-year journey. Uh, I was a television news reporter. And honestly, I I was never really thinking about financial news or even investing. I was always a really good saver, but uh, like so many immigrants, I didn't understand our current system and I saved in cash, which was the probably the dumbest thing you could do. Um, And so I, one thing that I, I kind of like to mention is that being a reporter, I would be in so many communities reporting on really the biggest issues that our society faces today, the, the increasing cost of living people feeling frustrated and left behind and divided and everything's getting so polarized. But at the end of the day, you know, I would just meet on a daily basis, good, hardworking people that are trying to provide for their families, dealing with everything from a rise in crime to public corruption, to cost of education soaring, the cost of their rent, you know, increasing while their wages stay stagnant. And I never understood why these things are happening and why sort of the future, which we want to look to as this, you know, bright place that we're working toward that's going to be a better um, world than the one we we came from or the one that our, our, our parents or grandparents had. But yet it seemed like every year things are getting harder for people um, in America, which represents, you know, opportunity in the American dream. So um, in 2017, I was a local reporter and I um, I was living in Northern California. I had a group of friends who were in Silicon Valley and San Francisco working in the tech space and they brought up Bitcoin and I was, you know, very dismissive like most people are. I thought that it was a stock. I thought that, um, I thought that you, you know, it could get hacked because it's digital and it could all go to zero. So I really didn't pay close attention to it until I had a mentor of mine who gave me the book, The Bitcoin Standard. And he said, you need to read this. Bitcoin is much bigger and much more important than you're giving it credit. And this is, this is, you know, representative of sort of what you're fighting for in this mission that the world should be more fair. Cause I always, I always felt like the world's not fair. It should be more fair. Um, and so I read the book and it was a life changing moment for me, honestly. And I just started down the rabbit hole, learning everything I can about the network and feeling that, um, it is the, the best potential that we have for a solution to the biggest financial problems that our country's facing. And so I became very passionate about it, started a podcast, and here I am. <laughs> okay. It, it's somewhere on the shelf back there. I was trying to see it, but I can't. I do have a kind yeah, of it's right here. standard. Uh, no, no, I see it on your shelf, but it's on my, yeah. it's on my shelf yeah. somewhere too. Okay, so... You covered a lot of ground there. Um, and so let's go back to the the topic of inflation, because that is something that whether for the audience who might be going, I'm not too sure about Bitcoin. Let's just talk about inflation and the, the damaging yeah. effect it has, not only on lower income communities in the U.S., but abroad. And I think that message really gets missed is that um, if you go to Honduras or Nicaragua or some of the parts of it in Africa where they're really real poverty, like, like there's not only is there like extreme poverty, there's really not a lot of hope to get out of the poverty. Like there's no path forward. 
in, in America, I'm not saying poverty is diminished, but there is at least the potential um, to start business or, or to whatever to get out um, a lot easier. The, the inflation thing, I think, is probably one of the strongest cases against the fiat. Um, on top of that, if you look at um, the reserve currency and how it's used as a weapon, it's also a very strong case against the, the, the fiat model. Um, but let's go back to inflation. You mentioned seeing low-income communities and how inflation was impacting them. Mm-hmm. What would, I mean, from their perspective, how would Bitcoin fix some of those issues? Well, here's the thing that I think is the most interesting. We don't think about inflation or we didn't until recently. So the years that I was I was covering the majority of my stories, we weren't in this post-pandemic and post-stimulus world where we're hearing about inflation reaching, you know, 9% at its high last year. We just sort of accept that things around us are getting more expensive and no one asks that fundamental question of why and does it have something to do with our political or uh, excuse me, our monetary system as opposed to just politics. And what's unfortunate is I felt like in the last maybe four years that I was reporting, everyone just divided into these teams, right? It's red versus blue. It's you versus me. We have to have a common enemy. And instead of, you know, putting a microscope onto our banking and financial system, we just kind of, you know, formed teams. And I, I didn't realize how, um, money printing actually worked. And the fact that, you know, the CPI that they tell us this, this idea of a 2% target, you know, I, I, I believe that that's a phony number because when you look at the cost of real estate going up or stocks going up or the cost of education going up, that's the real inflation. And as they continually uh, expand our money supply, that inflation kind of like what you alluded to, it puts the most pressure on the people that are the working class and the people who are low income or fixed income. And it benefits the people at the top who have assets. Uh, so the system feeds on itself. And it's this its this really damaging loop where all of a sudden, you know, the working class is fighting for a higher minimum wage because their same dollars don't buy as much. And meanwhile, yes, their house appreciated and most of their wealth is stuck in their house. But, you know, if they sell their house to get that cash out, they just have to go buy another expensive house because of because of the cost that's appreciated in those in those um, asset classes. And so it's like this race. You can never catch up anymore. And there was this really great um, statistic that was posted recently on Twitter that I reshared where it said in 1960, the average house or a median a house in the, in America was $12,000. The median income was $5,600. Fast forward to 2022, the median home is $450,000 and the median income is $75,000. So you have to work three times as hard to afford the same home. And so that to me says, there's a problem here. Why is your house going up in value way faster than your wages? And when you start to ask those questions and peel back the layers of our current system, you start to see that there really aren't a lot of legitimate solutions presented by our leadership, but this technology, Bitcoin, the network in its distributed scarce um, programming can actually address the most fundamental, most important thing in our economy, which is the money, which is the lifeblood. Yeah, the, the housing thing is interesting because if you remember the um, during George W. Bush presidency, I, they had a campaign. I can't remember what it was, but basically everyone should own a home. 
Um, and of course, I'm not against home ownership. I think it's great if you can afford a home. Great. But that's actually not that that shouldn't necessarily be the goal that we should push on society as a, as a whole. Some people I live in a rural county about 45 minutes south of DFW. Well, if, if you want to live in downtown Fort Worth, you don't need a home. Actually, you can't even have a home because there's big sky rises. You want an apartment. Um, and so this mentality of trying to there's one size fits all is kind of what you get from the government. And that, that's part of the larger problem, it seems, is we want that they, they want to push a certain agenda um, across the spectrum. And it's like, well, it sounds good. Everybody needs a home. Cool. Everybody needs a place to live, but everyone needs a home, a house, an actual house. Um, that's part of the housing issue here. And so when you we think about monetary policy, one group of people that are super smart will say trying to understand how to determine what the interest rate should be or where it should go. Um, you can see that 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 is probably not the best thing for for people to have a, a set group of people trying to make the determination. And when you say that, people go, they seem to think that you're saying something else. And and to me, that's the hard that's the hard pitch for the Bitcoin side is is trying to get people to understand that it's not that you're saying um, you're against certain things; it's you're saying that you think there's a better way to achieve certain things. Yeah, most people in the Bitcoin space who I've met are really passionate about returning to a system of free markets, which, you know, I would say that America is much better in in terms of the world and other countries when it comes to capitalism. But at the same time, we really don't have true capitalism. We have a form of crony capitalism. Or I recently interviewed a guest named Natalie Smolensky who um, alluded to it as uh, de registe. It's like a hybrid of capitalism with some controls. We're certainly not as bad as places like China, which has capital controls. But at the same time, we don't have free markets where the free market sets interest rates, um, which is so important in terms of, you know, maintaining a system that isn't manipulated and has true price signals for um, supply and demand and true competition that would weed out, uh, you know, companies and entities that are not supposed to be profitable, but are in our current system because it's flooded with this easy, easy money and, and artificially low interest rates. And one thing that you mentioned about pushing people to have a house, you know, we're pushing people to go into debt for the house. Your number one, um, you know, tax write-off is your mortgage payment. We're just, we're incentivizing people to go into debt. And what's, what people don't realize is that, okay, if, well, if everyone now has access to this money that's essentially created out of thin air, there's more of it, there's more demand. So all of a sudden that pushes prices up as well. But is your house actually worth that? I mean, I, one thing that I'm, I'm really excited about with Bitcoin is this idea that, um, houses would fall, the house price would fall to the utility value again so that it would be affordable. I mean, it would be great if everyone had a house, but they should have a house that they own, not that the bank owns and they're paying a bunch of money right. over 30 years, which is mainly interest. They should have a home because they were able to save. And one thing that's always frustrated me is we judge the health of our economy by how much we're spending, by how much we're consuming, right? I worked in the news industry. Every Thanksgiving or Christmas time, we would put up a big um, you know, uh, graph on the screen saying this is how much people are spending on Thanksgiving when uh when some of our financial crises have happened like post 9/11 people were encouraged to go spend it's not patriotic to hoard and save your money go out and spend that means the economy is healthy well we should be spending out of money that we have out of capital that we've saved so that we can invest it as opposed to going into debt and right now currently we are at record high debt for families around the country 
our country has led by example. Our country is so far in debt that we're paying our visa with our MasterCard and we can't keep up with the interest rates as they increase them. I mean, our debt obligations, it's the piper that needs to be paid. And eventually that means that we're sacrificing the dollar. And so these long-term problems, again, once you put a spotlight on them, you really start to take a step back and go, wow, you know, policies that may have been well-intentioned are really hurting American people. And they're going to hurt future generations even more because inflation is a tax and the debt has to be paid in some way. And so what's the solution? Bitcoin, if you study it, if you study the technology, how bulletproof it is, is the only solution that I have been able to found find that I can count on and rely on. And that's why I'm passionate about it. Yeah. And the other thing, um, besides the housing stuff is, is the way that wall street set up, right? So, Oh, if you want to invest money, if you do it this way, we'll work with you on your taxes. And so, you know, through your IRA or 401k, the different tax strategies they have there, which helps go fund companies on wall street. And it's, it's, it's really interesting because if you said, well, you know, I just like to own real estate as a um, investment or, you know, I want to go invest in a business or, or whatever. Um, there are ways to a self-directed, you can do some of that stuff, but essentially, the people who benefit through the retirement plans in the, in the U.S. is Wall Street, and, it, 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 and that helps overvalue those companies because all these monies are, are funneled through them through mutual funds and, and various aspects. And so, again, you could see where that. And so, people would say, "Ah, the free market's working." It's like, well, it's not really a free market because you're being incentivized to invest your money this one way predominantly. The other ways you can, but it's a lot harder. It's hard to figure out if you get paid certain ways. You can get taxed. Uh, but this way, it's pretty easy. And so it, it sends, a, to your point about false signals, it sends false signals about where to invest your money, which is Wall Street. And oh, by the way, just hope when you need, you need that money 30, 40, 50 years from now, you're not in the middle of a recession because if so, you lost all your value. But the company that you were incentivized to invest in or the, the group of companies, um, you know, they made your, they made money off of you for years and years and years. And the guy who was trading it was making money. So yeah, there's a lot of false signals in the economy. And I'm not a big fan of um, people promoting the U.S. as a free market society because it's definitely not, and, and that's kind of a, and that's part of the problem. We talk about healthcare, or investing, home ownership. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that are tied up into the system that, that makes it not free market, and it kind of makes a yeah. quasi system that's almost less efficient in some regards um, <laughs> than some other countries because we we won't pick a side. So it's you're kind of battling: should you be free market or or more of kind of a socialist mentality? And it, it, it kind of puts mud in the wheels, if you will. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, we've, we've really accelerated this process of deterioration of our country's prosperity after we depegged from something of sound value when we went off the, the, the gold standard, essentially, because at that point, there, there have been no consequences truly to our printing of money and making us debt, the global reserve currency. And we've exported a lot of our inflation, which is sad. It's what you mentioned earlier. There are countries that are really, really struggling because they need the dollar and their fiat currencies are inflating and debasing at a far faster rate than our dollar. 
we've been so privileged here. So even though we do have so many issues facing society, of course, there are so many places where people are struggling with real poverty because their fiat has collapsed um, or it's been debased, you know, 50, 90% overnight. We're seeing people light banks on fire in Lebanon. Um, there's a, you know, a trillion dollar bill in Zimbabwe that they, they eventually created because they had hyperinflation. It's just, it's really sad what happens when a small group of bureaucrats um, make the decisions and manipulate the cost of capital instead of allowing a free market to function. And really the the incentive that they have is that the free market would probably weed them out and they wouldn't be able to survive because the free market is really truly that competition of survival of the fittest. Risk is rewarded, but it's also punished. It's not bailed out by the taxpayer. And so we see more and more in our country now that we're further along in this debt cycle, the consolidation of businesses, of enterprises because the cost of capital was so manipulated that small mar- small businesses can't compete with these giant corporations and the Wall Street funds. Um, and that's that Cantillon effect as well, where the more money they print, it sort of pools at the top. It doesn't, it doesn't create prosperity and abundance for everybody else. Um, we've hollowed out the middle class here. And really, so when you when you hear people talk during you know the elections and they're they're struggling, they want leadership and they want someone to help them. Them, you realize that these are the problems they're talking about. It's the fact that they want just a chance to work and be able to have the fruits of their labor take care of them and take care of their families. And and why wouldn't we want that in, in a country that's built on freedom and opportunity and prosperity? Uh, and yet we're having trouble achieving that because we've messed with the system so much and we have left people behind and we've made it so that it's not as accessible. And of course, young people, you know, they graduate now and they're frustrated. They're like, I can't afford a house. How how can I? My job out of college, which everybody has a bachelor's degree today, it doesn't keep up with the pace of things going up in, in price. Um, and so I really am passionate about helping people understand the current system so that they they too go, okay, we need to find a solution. What are our possibilities? What are the options out there? And then when you start to study Bitcoin, you go, oh, wow, this is something that could really potentially help and realign us to a, a, an economy of sound value again in a digital ecosystem because mm-hmm. everything's going digital. And so, um, yeah, I think I think it could solve a lot of these problems. Why not gold? Gold is slow. And it's mainly uh, concentrated in central banks. And do you trust the central banks? I certainly don't. You know, and we got here because of the gold issue, right? It was too slow. It couldn't be moved around. And so people started to create paper promises on top of it. it, And then they inflated the paper promises. And we turned into a fractional reserve banking society where a bank only has about a tenth of the assets um, as opposed to, you know, actually having things backed one to one. And so, you know, we tried gold and gold failed. And so we need something new. We are in a, um, you know, the future is digital and we need things moving at the speed of light. And so now we have something. Well, but to be fair to gold, in this case, Bitcoin couldn't have existed when we got off the gold standard. So it's not as, it's not as if you could say, well, we could have used Bitcoin back then and we didn't. Um, and, and the slow argument I'm fine with. But I guess where I get confused on this debate is it, it seems that you could build a network to trade gold just as fast as you could trade Bitcoin. I don't don't see why you couldn't build that. And so to my understanding, most of the pro Bitcoin crowd believes the gold standard was good. Um, As you said a minute ago, it was a good thing. Um, We all understand we left it. 
Uh, we all see the progression against it. Um, but now the Bitcoin to overtake the spot of gold instead of just saying, well, why don't we use this network for gold? Wouldn't that be better? So that that's where I guess the disconnect I don't understand is why can't the network um, be used just to trade gold instead of Bitcoin? Well, so with Bitcoin, you have true scarcity and you have true verification. Um with gold, you have to trust central banks. I mean, the reason that Bitcoin was invented is because of the problems that exist in a system of trust. You have to trust the central bank. You have to trust the commercial bank. You have to trust the business. Um, with Bitcoin, you don't trust, you verify an immutable ledger. And so this technology is one where we we know that it's programmed to have 21 million Bitcoins that can never be inflated or manipulated or controlled by anyone. Whereas with gold, A, we where is the supply of gold right now? Do you know how much the U.S. has? Do you know how much China has? Would you believe what China says? Who controls that ledger? Who 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 verifies it? Where's How can we do some sort of accounting that anyone can actually rely on? And then what is the inflation of gold? It's about 2% every single year. Do we think inflation of 2% is good? Do we want any inflation? I mean, you start to ask these questions again, and gold has certainly been a great store of value. And it's proven itself over thousands of years in terms of maintaining uh, purchasing power, which I still think is an option for a lot of people who say, okay, I want to protect my purchasing power. Gold is still a legitimate, viable investment. But what about the future? What does the future look like? How are you going to store your value now, 100, 100 years from now? And how are you going to move it at the speed of light from here to another country? And so now it needs to move on digital rails. But again, one one of these asset classes you can easily verify and um, audit, and the other mm. you you can't. It's mainly concentrated again in central banks with a ton of paper promises and derivatives built on top of it. So um, for me, gold is just kind of you know it's 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 not viable for a future that is a digital economy. Well, if you look at something like oil, um, okay, so there you have a mix of some of it's held by the government, some of it's held by private entities, some of it's kind of quasi held. Um, and there's 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 still a market price that's set based upon trading, supply and demand. And so when I hear the scarcity argument, um, you say there, there's 21 million Bitcoin that can be produced. Um, part of what what I understand to be free free market arguments is that um, if if something becomes you know scarcity is part of the issue, but if something is in high demand and the supply is low, the price goes up. And so I don't I guess if you said gold is slow. You're not sure where it is. I think you could solve that just like you have with oil, which is some some privately held, some publicly held, just like other commodities are. But if you said that there was only you know 17 more bars of gold left in the world, it would become so expensive that no one could buy it. So how does only a limited number of Bitcoin not do the same thing that you mentioned, like with housing or whatever? Because once the Bitcoin are mined, um, you get the end there, the price would be so expensive. How could anyone afford it? Yeah, so I I think that one of the best books that tackles this issue is a book by Rothbard. He's an Austrian economist, and he wrote a book called um, What Government Has Done to Our Money. And he addresses this idea of um, the supply of money and whether it needs to be inflated or grow. Because the truth of the matter is when the supply of any kind of money increases, no one becomes wealthier. They just have to use more monetary units in order to pay for the same things. What we need is an abundance of goods. That's what makes a society abundant and actually prosperous with the most opportunity and the most ability for people to, to innovate and invest and reinvest. 
It's, it's being able to produce, to be productive. And for that, the number of units actually doesn't matter. Um, and, and the book actually touches on that. The idea of like a supply cap, you could pick 10 Bitcoin, you could pick 21 million Bitcoin or 50 million Bitcoin. It doesn't matter as long as that amount can never be capped because if the money supply doesn't change and you have to function within the economy, supply, demand, provide goods, get services back, you want to retain your purchasing power for the long run. So you want the monetary unit that is determined by the market and used by everyone to have the most power so that people can save and then invest. That capital goes to productive goods. And again, those consumer goods flood into the economy in the form of abundance that people have. You are not wealthier when there's an abundance of money. You are wealthier when there's scarcity in money. Um, and so I, I'm really passionate about um, just this idea that we we return to some sort of fiscal restraint where we're not just creating money out of thin air and people are working harder and harder essentially for less. So you could get a little raise in your um, in your income, but again, if the if the houses are going up every single year by seven to ten to twenty percent in some cities, but you got a raise of three percent you're behind, you're behind. And this is like, it's, it just adds on top of it itself every single year. So, um, we need a supply of money that can't just continue to increase because then the people that are closest to the monetary spigot are the ones that get access to it and they benefit at the expense of everybody else. And they socialize those losses. And that's really, really not fair. So, um, you know, Austrian economics has been a, a, a journey of knowledge that I'm really grateful Bitcoin has pointed me toward because it fundamentally changed the way that I looked at money and how money is created and what supply of money is good. Um, and and an expanding supply of money is not good for anybody. Okay, so just to tease out the the the, the number of the thing there on on one one end you have a hard cap of you know. Uh, 10, just use your math, right? But on the other end, you can subdivide that money into multiple subsets. And so, yeah, you do have a, a hard cap, but you are just, you are subdividing it into smaller, smaller, smaller portions. Um, so you're, I guess you're not, I guess you're saying you're not increasing the total number of, of, of units, um, but you are subdividing the units down so small to where someone could function in them. Is that what, is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. So one Bitcoin can be divided into 100 million Satoshis. The vision, obviously, if we were to move to a Bitcoin standard is that everyone is transacting via the Lightning Network with Satoshis. And that can be, you know, I, I believe we should actually move more to the SATS standard because one Bitcoin... Who knows what that will be worth in the future? But um, but Satoshis, you know, we can think of as, oh, this coffee costs five Satoshis. You know, right now it's like 0. 0.000 whatever of a Bitcoin. It would be a lot easier if we were able to to talk about a unit of account that's a little bit easier for people to wrap their head around as opposed to a fractional number, which right now most people refer to everything as a fraction of a Bitcoin. Um, so so the Satoshis, I, I would like to get that word more into the mainstream because that's essentially like talking about dollars or pennies at the end of the day, uh, where Whereas Bitcoin itself, long into the future, decades from now, if that becomes the standard, then the actual Bitcoin, they're not going to be moving that frequently. There's 21 million of them. They're going to be, you know, people are going to be transacting in Satoshis. Okay. So someone might hear this and go, what would keep, I don't know, Sailor, Bill Gates, you know, whoever you want to say, um, Warren Buffett, I know that they're not Bitcoin guys, but something like that from, from, buying and holding 
a decent percentage of the Bitcoin and never releasing them. And so um, they are they're in control of a, of a good portion of the network. So you don't have 21 million available. You have 6 million available or 16 million or, or whatever the number might be. Would that be a concern? No. So I th- so this is where I think people get a little bit confused. So let's take a monopoly board. Okay. And uh, you have the central bank and you have your monopoly dollars and you have a certain amount of properties on that board. And let's say all of a sudden someone were to flood the central bank with a ton more monopoly paper, right? Well, what would the what would the price of those homes do? It would go up, right? Because there's just more bills. People have more bills that they they need to put somewhere and they put it into something scarce. And the only thing scarce on that board is is the properties. So everything goes up in value. But let's say, let's say you had that board and the amount of money on it was completely capped. And on that board were people who were interacting in an economy, right? One of them sold oranges, the other one sold the houses, another one made bread, whatever it is. We're we're interacting. I mean, we are all in an economy where people are selling and purchasing goods, goods and services. We are constantly exchanging. That is what the world is made up of. If you capped the supply and you're and someone just hoarded a bunch of the monopoly money, everyone else's money, because of that being out of circulation, would just go up in value. They'd be able to purchase more for it without um without some of that in the supply, but they would continue to barter, not barter, but like exchange the money for goods and services. I mean, that's that's how an economy functions. No matter what the supply is, people have to spend, people have to produce. The problem is when you expand constantly and there are a few people who have access to it and make the decisions, then everybody's paying more for things that aren't actually worth more. Um, so I don't know if that that helps kind of put, put it into a better frame of reference, but you know, Michael Saylor, if he has a ton of Bitcoin someday, he he has to at some point spend on, you know, a new pair of shirts or uh, on, you know, a vacation, whatever it is, that money is going to go into society. And then people will use that money in, in a flow that is based on something that, again, can't be controlled, can't be manipulated. We are constantly... F- we're free actors that are constantly interacting with each other in an economy. And so um, Bitcoin is this unit that we can rely on, that we can verify that's on this immutable ledger, as opposed to a system where the money's made out of, created out of thin air and there are no consequences to printing that money. And it makes everyone poorer, but it makes the people at, at the top who have assets much richer. And now they have such a big portion of the the pie that, you know, it obviously feels very top heavy of the rich are so rich and the poor are just trying to get by. Um, so you know, I, again, I'm one of the best things about Bitcoin is the scarcity and the supply cap, the fact that no one can increase that supply. And as you see the Bitcoin network grow in adoption, you see the Bitcoins getting diffused. And as they go up in value, it's actually a much more egalitarian ownership um, of the Bitcoins because they're more and more diffused and distributed into society. We talked about the reserve currency earlier. The U.S. is not going to give up its status, its, its status as reserve currency quietly. That's the, that's something that they will fight for, um, to the point of using military um, to to keep to keep that. Are you concerned that the government might come out and say, "Hey, we're going to tax Bitcoin at eighty percent, or or something like that," to where it's basically, you know, not not profitable to to, to transact in it. I definitely think that the government can um, create hurdles and obstacles in terms of the on and off ramps, 
um, and situations like you mentioned, capital gains taxes, but that would be at a severe disadvantage because it is, you know, a decentralized technology that's global and you can't stop it in the same way that you can't stop the internet. You can cut yourself off from it, which I think would be handicapping uh, the U.S. in a time when it needs something of sound value more than ever. So there are a lot of Bitcoiners who just are very uh, active in trying to make sure that policymakers are educated in the asset class so that they um, you know, strategically acquire it in the future. I think that if the U.S. were to develop a, um, a strategy to acquire Bitcoin, as a um as a reserve currency i think that that would actually potentially save the dollar in the future um and and make it so that it's backed by something again of of true substance and value i don't know if we we will move in that direction or not i'm 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 bullish i'm actually optimistic because i think that out of all the other cryptocurrencies and technologies that are out there um you know our regulators and policymakers for the most part have recognized that bitcoin is a commodity it's it's an asset with no issuer it's no one's liability it is a um it is a form of property and so the legislation that's come out so far it really does not affect bitcoin ownership uh, i just hope that they you know they stay in they stay the course and they stay in the right direction in terms of not not um creating too many barriers for people to enter into this market and ecosystem and not overtaxing it. You're right. Um, so, but, but if they were to do something like that, that's the thing people would leave because Bitcoin is not rooted here in the U S it is, uh, it is in cyberspace. And so you can take your keys and, and move somewhere where they would have, um, you know, more friendly jurisdictions. And people have already done that. People are moving to places like El Salvador and, um, places like Madeira, which are, uh, creating sort of incentives for creating businesses and, and, uh, holding Bitcoin there because you won't get taxed on it. So, um, we don't want to drive that, that innovation, that entrepreneurship and that capital investment out. We want to have it here. So I think it's very strategic for the U.S. to adopt a very pro-Bitcoin stance. Yeah. And I've heard some Bitcoiners talk about working with legislators. And to me, the Bitcoin crowd should oppose any legislation at all, period, bar none. Opening any door for legislation would be, first off, it's anti-free market to the point earlier, unless it's some kind of protective measure. But even that, you don't need it if it's free market. So I'm a little confused on why Bitcoiners are trying to work with legislators. Um, I get there, there's 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 the the potential for um, educational. Okay, that's fine. But working with them on legislation seems to be a dangerous road because, you know, if you think about, for instance, um, you know, it's illegal right now for me to go to another country and to pay a bribe in that country as a for as a U.S. citizen. It's just, it's just, it's it's illegal. Um, I can't do that. So I can be in Ghana, pay a bribe with U.S. dollars, and I go to jail in the U.S. for that Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So the government will do stuff like that, which is they will then claim ownership of Bitcoin, and they can track it on the ledger. So help me understand why Bitcoiners would want to work with legislators on any of these issues. Why would Bitcoiners want to work with legislators? Yeah, earlier you were saying you want to be free market. So I guess I'm confused. Why would you want to have legislation tied up with Bitcoin at all? When you want no, would you want any? You you should want no legislation, right? So I'm a very small government, uh, a person. I believe that less regulation is actually better in terms of the free market is the best regulator because it, it does weed out bad actors. Um, but we also have to be realistic. We live in a system where we have policies, we have laws in place, especially in the investing and 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 banking sector. Um, and so we just want to make sure that the people who are in these leadership roles who do have more 
concentrated power than they ever have before in our country, that they don't create these um, useless and needless roadblocks to people adopting this technology. Um, we want the laws that are created to be fair and to be made from a place where policymakers are educated. Um, and again, there, there really haven't been too many issues with Bitcoin because it is a commodity and it is a form of digital property. And so it is taxed as such. And it is, um, it, so far regulations have not, have not hurt Bitcoin in any way. I think if anything, there's going to be more clarity as they maybe create a framework with what's a digital commodity versus a digital security. And, and maybe a lot of the tokens will go away when that happens. But I'm, I'm really not worried about Bitcoin because again, it's a form of essentially digital cash that you can take anywhere that you have, there are no barriers to entry. Um, you can download a non-custodial wallet and start transacting in Satoshi's you know, within a couple of seconds and uh, send them to another part of the world where normally it would have taken days to settle. Some middleman would have taken a cut. It would have had to get cleared by this central bank and that central bank. I mean, this is like the instant transfer of value, uh, which I think is going to really revolutionize, um, you know, access to opportunity in the future for people all over the world that have never had access to a banking banking system or bank account that have never had the ability to, to send and accumulate value in such an easy, fast way. But once the government taxes something, they are now saying that they own it. And so that, that, again, that's where, I guess where I guess, I don't know the Bitcoin crowd should seem to want to push against government taxing Bitcoin on any level. Cause once they tax it, they do claim ownership When they claim ownership. They can build out other laws that you can violate in regards to it. And so to me, that's the scary thing about Bitcoin is the crowd working with legislators instead of saying, no, 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 you can't touch this. You can't tax this. You have nothing to do with this because once you let them tax it, they are now claiming ownership of it. And however you want to, however you want to frame that, it doesn't really matter. They are saying that they own the Bitcoin because they can tax you. It's theirs. And so they can get you for all kinds of other offenses. So that's, I guess where I'm confused. Why would you want them to ever tax it at all or, or try to work with them instead of saying, no, 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 you can't tax this. It's unconstitutional instead of making that argument. Because once you concede a little bit, to your point about Federal Reserve, banking, all those arguments that you made earlier, which I agree with, by the way, when you work with them on this issue, it's not going to end. It just can't end well because that's not how they function. That, that's, I guess that's where the hurdle I have a hard time. I, I'm with you on all this other stuff. It's like working with them. No, they're going to screw it up. They're going to put you in jail for some violation with Bitcoin. That's what's going to ha- It's just what's going to happen. I mean, look, I I really think that the more that people, the people who are electing these officials understand this, they're going to push for fair um, and sound regulation or or policies if they happen. Um, I agree with you in the sense that the best thing would be not to tax Bitcoin and to allow people to to transact in it freely like they do in some countries. But, you know, what what kind of elected officials we end up having, I'm certainly not in control of that. I, I do my best to vote the way that I think is 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 better at a given time. But, you know, these are the questions that will exist in the future. How, what will they try to do? Um, again, like I mentioned earlier, I think that Bitcoin would be a strategic acquisition for the U.S. that could potentially strengthen the dollar. And I see a future where Bitcoin is the reserve asset, and then the dollar is sort of the currency and the medium of exchange, and that the dollar maybe collapses other fiat currencies, and everyone goes on this dollar system that's now on crypto rails. 
with Bitcoin as the underlying store of value. Um, but, you know, that world, you know, is probably very far away because right now only 2% of the world has Bitcoin. And uh, a lot of the policymakers who are currently in Congress, they don't even understand what Bitcoin is. I mean, we have people like Elizabeth Warren who are very uneducated in this space, making claims that aren't even true. And uh, so we have a lot of work to do because, um, you know, I, I I can only imagine what it was like when gold was being monetized thousands of years ago, where, you know, at one point gold was not money. It had to happen. And a good form of money is a commodity and it emerges on the free market. And we have, you know, an education process that we're all a part of. We are all learning what money is and why it's why it's important to have a source of money that can't be manipulated or inflated. Now we have one that's digital and global. Um, and so we we have some lessons to be learned as uh, as governments try to increase their concentration of power. And we need to fight back as the people because, you know, as as uh, cliche as it sounds, Bitcoin is the people's money. No one can control or manipulate it. And it, I think it will allow people to gain back some of their power that they've lost to the people at the, at the that are the wealthiest in society, to the people that are the bureaucrats and hold, you know, essentially all the power. This is our chance to say, no, we are sovereign individuals. We want to have freedom and we want to be able to have ownership of our money. We don't want it to, to be inflated away and taxed. Um and we're going to create a world that that looks like the one we want to see. That's one uh, of abundance. Um, so I think it's this is going to be a decades long journey, but I think we're moving in the right direction. I really do. Okay. So people who are on board now, they're like, yes, I like Bitcoin. I want to go that way. There are some dangers. I say dangers. I know there's a little bit of concern about you can buy it from certain spots, but you don't actually own the Bitcoin. There's an intermediary. Give us some direction where to go if, he, if people want to, A, we'll link to the Bitcoin standard, but B, if they want to yeah. start investing, they want to start you know, buying Bitcoin, they want to buy all 21 million because they're loaded. What would you suggest? Like, give us a path, a journey to go on. Yeah, so um, this space can be really intimidating when you start, especially because in the last couple of years, it's really ballooned and there are a lot of different crypto platforms and um, I've tried different ones and I've experimented certainly. But one thing that's really important to start to learn about, in addition to really just understanding Bitcoin, the network, mining, all of that, um, is understanding self-custody because really the movement, uh, a very important you know tenet of it is being sovereign and becoming your own bank and making sure that you're not needing to trust anybody else who could potentially be a bad actor. And so we saw in the case of FTX, right? He essentially counterfeited money. He created a, a vapor token and then he manipulated the price and he used it as collateral to take out loans. And he basically spent honest people's Bitcoin and he uh, legislated for, you know, rules against Bitcoin. And so um, we have bad actors in the space and people have to take responsibility to, to know where they're purchasing their Bitcoin. And if they're going to leave it on that platform, they really have to be able to sit there and say, okay, I trust the CEO of this company. And I trust that my Bitcoin that I can see on my screen in the form of numbers is actually there and being held by them in cold storage and not being rehypothecated, loaned out and uh, spent on politicians, right? So for me, if you if if I want to have like most security to me, it's like, okay, I'm going to take my Bitcoin 
into self-custody where I trust myself. I am my own bank. And there are so many solutions that are available in terms of cold storage and multi-sig, which basically means that you you become your own bank. You take the Bitcoin off of the exchange and uh, you have a seed phrase and a key that you keep private and safe. Um, you can also have multi-sig is essentially like multiple keys. So it's almost like I, I have a key and then someone I trust has a key and we both need it to unlock the Bitcoin. There are so many solutions that are out there. Great YouTube tutorials, um, BTC sessions. I recommend for everyone. He does awesome tutorials on the different hardware wallets, but it's just, it's important to know that your Bitcoin is safe and secure and I trust myself over any exchange. So I buy my Bitcoin on a Bitcoin only exchange and then I take custody of it. And just to be clear for the listener, when you're saying Bitcoin, it is literally Bitcoin, no other crypto, not 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 Doge or anything else. You are a Bitcoin only person, right? And that, that, that's a big distinction that kind of gets missed if you don't understand the space. Yeah. So when I was very new to this space, I kind of conflated all of them. And I saw the other tokens as very attractive because they they seemed cheaper. Right. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, what if this one moons and I can make a ton of money? And and always it's it's really interesting because I thought of it in the case of I want it to go up in value and then I want to sell it and convert it back to fiat or put it into Bitcoin, which is just, you know, automatically that's sort of a red flag, right? You're sort of gambling and you don't really know what the underlying technology is. And a lot of these tokens, unfortunately, um, you know, they're not they're not disclosing it, but they are securities with um you know, boards and foundations that can change the supply, they can change the rules, they can decide what's going to happen with it. They're almost, they're they're different in the sense that they're like digital equities, whereas Bitcoin, again, is a form of digital property. It is a digital commodity. No one can control it. So I have veered from having investments in different tokens to being Bitcoin only when I really fundamentally understood the technology. And so I, I, am, I am all about Bitcoin and I put my money where my mouth is. <laughs> Okay, great. Um, where do you want us to point people to? Uh, I know you have a YouTube channel, Twitter, website, where, and we'll link to all that in the show notes. Sure. I really appreciate it. Um, I have a show called Coin Stories where I interview prominent names in the Bitcoin space, but also people within um, economics, politics, and uh, different different areas of study that some of them are for Bitcoin, some of them are not. And I, I just talked to them about the world that we're in, our, the state of our economy, Bitcoin as a technology solution. Um, I also have a show called Hard Money, which focuses on Bitcoin adoption around the world. And I produce that with Swan Bitcoin, which is the exchange where I bank. And uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Nat Brunel. Okay, great. We'll link to that in the show notes. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for answering all the questions. Um, this is helpful for people who um, aren't really aware. And I, I think as you get in to the Bitcoin space, first off, it's hard to find, I think, anyone today um, who is pro, when they really think about pro fiat. Um, I think getting someone to go what the next step is, that's that's a tough question because there are the all the unknowns. And so it's a, it's a, it's a conversation that we need to have more of as a society, as someone who is definitely libertarian. <laughs> I am not yeah. wanting the feds to be in charge of anything, uh, much less Bitcoin yeah. or whatever it might be. And so, um, so yes, uh, I think there, it's a conversation that needs to be have uh, had. And, and after, you know, as someone who was anti-fiat prior to the pandemic, um, it's easy to have easier to have the conversation these days. Whereas before people, to your point, I don't think they really saw that whether you had Obama or Trump, they're doing the same thing with the currency during the administration. It's just orders of magnitude, right? Depending on how much they're spending. 
And then you go through the 2020 and you go, oh my gosh, wow, they're blowing the budget out on this thing. And then Biden comes in, oh my gosh, he's blowing the budget out of this thing. And you go, oh wait, they're all doing it. They're all doing it. And so yeah. it's, it's it's only going to get worse. And so now I think people are more right. receptive to to at least question how you should position this. Um, we didn't get, get didn't even get to the banking system and all the problems with that, but that's <laughs> do another three hours. So anyways, yeah. thank you so much for your time today. Enjoyed the show. Thank you. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.